Hello world and Happy New Year. I'm John Bruni and you're listening to Strategicon, your window to all things security and foreign affairs. On January 2, 2020, just one day into the new year, it was confirmed that a US-initiated drone strike happened at Baghdad International Airport, which killed Iranian master strategist and commander of the Quds Force, Major General Qasem Soleimani, as well as Deputy Chairman of Iraq's Popular Mobilization Forces, Abu Mahad al-Mahandis. This targeted assassination ordered by President Trump was meant to have thwarted an Iranian strike against US interests in the region. Last year, we witnessed mysterious attacks on international shipping in the Gulf, an attack on Saudi oil installations, which temporarily cut global oil production by 5%, and of course increased tension between the US and Shiite militia forces in Iraq, fought to be under the control of Soleimani and the IRGC. Then, in December of last year, a US contractor was killed and several US soldiers were wounded in a rocket attack at an Iraqi military base. All of these attacks have been squarely blamed on Iran by the Trump White House. The fallout of Soleimani's targeted assassination has been swift. Immediately, Iran issued threats of retaliation. U.S. military forces are now pouring into the region. The Iranians have effectively pulled out of whatever was left of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal, while the Iraqi government, known to have divided loyalties to both Iran and the United States, have issued a parliamentary resolution calling for the withdrawal of all U.S. forces from the country, possibly delivering the entire country over to Iran. Should this proceed, it will complicate America's strategy in the Middle East, since Iraq is still considered an important staging base for operations in neighboring Syria. To discuss these matters today, we are joined in the studio, live from the UK, by Commodore Patrick J. Tyrrell, OBERN retired, Chair of the SIA Advisory Board and SIA Senior Non-Resident Fellow Global and Maritime Security. Before we start today's episode, I would like to remind listeners that Strategicon can be found on the Oscast Network, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and on the Sage International Australia website, www.sageinternational.org.au. Pat, Happy New Year and welcome back to Strategicon. So, the January 2nd assassination of Iranian Al-Quds commander Major General Qasem Soleimani has sent shockwaves internationally, making panic-prone markets and media suggest that we are now close to a US-Iran war. Hashtag World War III. But the Iranian response to the Soleimani assassination has been relatively muted. Rocket attacks on Iraqi bases hosting U.S. military personnel and two Katusha rockets landing in the Baghdad Green Zone, both attacks netting no known casualties. So has Iran, as President Trump claimed, stood down in the face of superior American might? I think the short answer is no. I think that there's... The whole issue of strategic ambiguity, which I think the um, Iranians can teach us an awful lot about. The Iranians know that, I mean, this talk of World War Three is frankly nonsense. Uh, A world war involves war between protagonists who are roughly equal. And, you know, the reason why we've only had two world wars is because previous wars, with the possible exception of the Napoleonic War, the previous wars have been almost asymmetric between a a powerful nation and a not-so-powerful nation. The Iranians know they cannot take on America on the battlefield. 
they they don't have the capabilities. They don't have. I mean, their air force is more of a museum than an air force. <laughs> but what they want is they they have this tendency of being able to wait. You know, they understand the value of pausing for a period, which they have. I mean, you know, Trump is saying, yes, no, 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 it's all being sorted. We killed the bad guy. None of our guys got killed. But we're all quiet now and we can uh, get on with doing things. Iran is now more determined than ever to develop nuclear weapons. You know, it was cajoled into uh, uh, an agreement uh, with the uh, seven powers, and that agreement then got breached by Trump. Now, the may he may well be right that the Iranians were observing it in a, a sort of moderately opaque manner, but at least it was delaying the this thing of Iran gaining a nuclear weapon. Iran sees that its only way to be able to control the area and its relationship with America by having nuclear weapons. After all, just look at North Korea, which is a tin pot dictatorship, but it does happen to have nuclear weapons. It's it's interesting. I mean, I, I've read a lot of the potential doctrine that the Iranians may actually implement were they be, were they to become a nuclear weapon state, but none of it seems to really ring that true. Because of course, a lot of them were saying that they'd be able to extend a nuclear umbrella over allied groups such as the Houthi in Yemen. They could sort of extend the nuclear umbrella over southern Lebanese Hezbollah, over Iraq, and so on and so forth. But because the national cost of creating a nuclear weapon is going to push the Iranian economy even further into the red, and that's, and that's putting it mildly, would not the Iranians actually keep their deterrent posture for the borders of Iran only, as opposed to that sort of nightmare scenario of kicking the can and just letting letting a, a sort of Iranian nuclear umbrella take care of all its proxy forces around the Middle East? I, I think you're I think you're right. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, it's it's one of the things that nuclear powers have to understand is that, you know, you have these weapons of incredible power and destruction, and you can't actually use them in the same way that you can use high explosive. I mean, high explosive has a, a, a limited impact when it lands. I mean, it can do considerable damage, don't get me wrong, by launching it at the right target. But... Nuclear weapons are just so unthinkable in their utility that suddenly, I mean, if you look at Pakistan, I mean, the Pakistanis wanted to get their nuclear weapons to be able to face off India, but now they're finding that they, you know, in the recent thing two years ago, Imran Khan uh, had to, or didn't have to, but Imran Khan took the very wise decision 
to de-escalate things, and they handed back the Indian pilot who'd been shot down in Pakistan because he recognised that, you know, going into a, a nuclear exchange, nobody wins. And I think that, I don't know that the Iranians quite understand that yet, you know, that the ownership of nuclear weapons puts greater onus on you. And that's probably one of the most frightening things about North Korea, mm. is that North Korea doesn't doesn't work uh, in the normal mores of, uh, of the world. But I think the Iranians, who are, you know, you have to say that the Persian empire and Persian culture is much more attuned to understanding the death and destruction that this could rain down on them. Returning to uh, this Soleimani targeted assassination, I mean, do you think that that was really necessary then? No, I don't. I mean, do I think he was a bad dude? Yes, of course. But effectively, by executing this chap, you know, here are we in the West. We like to believe that we are democratic, we uphold the rule of law, and, you know, the, we're the good guys on the block. And yet, you know, by executing a senior member of a fellow United Nations nation, it's almost, it is effectively a declaration of war. And, and you know, you, you need to be careful about how you do these things. And I'm not sure that Trump understands what the implications of this might be. Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, said that the Iranian missile attack on suspected locations of U.S. personnel in Iraq was not enough punishment for the U.S., Pat, do you think this is an ominous development, a harbinger of things to come, or just rhetorical flourish? Um, well, I think it's probably a bit of both. But I think that if you think the Iranians will not look at other ways that they can harm the United States and United States allies, you would be very wrong. Um, you know, the, the, the Iranians... You know, they seized a British tanker not that long ago and uh, only released it after the British released an Iranian tanker that was about to go and break sanctions in Syria. And the Iranians said, no, of course it's not going to break sanctions in Syria. Whereupon the Brits said, well, okay, if you promise on your honour that it's not going to break sanctions in Syria, we'll let it go and you can let our ship go. So they let the Iranian tanker go, which went promptly to Syria. Um, you know, I mean, the Iranians, the Iranians are not going to ease up on the Americans. They recognise they still blame the Americans for the Vincennes incident in 1988, and rightly so. I mean. Um, that was a, a, a major misjudgment at the tactical level, which had major strategic importance. You're listening to Strategicon. We're talking with Pat Tyrell about the rising US-Iranian tensions. 
we're going to go to a quick song break from our local Adelaide band Big Uncle Love Bus with their track Abe's Odyssey. Well, I've been on a trip. Messing with my brain, I'm taking it slow. And before I know, I'll be losing control. Abe's Odyssey by local Adelaide band Big Uncle Love Bus. Now we're returning to President Trump's legacy with the current US-Iranian tensions. We're talking to Pat Tyrell on Strategicon. The whole, let's say, uh, assassination and then the deployment of more troops as well is a fairly significant thing, a fairly significant commitment for Trump to make. 
something that you wouldn't want to do on on a whim, especially after you know uh, the memories of uh, troops in Iraq you know, more than just fifteen years ago, where they were treated terribly and. Uh, you know, it, this is not insignificant. That is in, within living memory. You would hope that this has a fairly well thought out reason behind it, but there seems to be no coverage of any sophisticated intent from Trump. Do you have any insight perhaps into why now, you know? No, apart from the fact that there is the the uh, election, the United States election is going to take place this autumn. I think that there have been opportunities to take out uh, Soleimani before, but that has been turned down as perhaps you know a bridge too far or a, a, an assassination too far. And I think that the sort of neocons in the American government always have long been trying to uh, do something like this against Iran, whom they see as being, you know, very much the bad guy on the block. Iranian politics, um, Iranian foreign policy is, is a much more nuanced and complex affair than that sort of neocon view would would accept. Uh, and I think that they've done it now for whatever particular reasons. I think it does have quite a lot to do with the election. Um, that Trump wants to be seen as being the guy who can take these major decisions. He can take them quickly. I mean, after all, you know, informing Congress effectively by tweet that you've just declared war is, well, it's a novel approach. <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> so, so Trump has uh, the impeachment process to wade through with the Senate trial to come. Would waiting to see Trump mired in defending his reputation make for a better window of opportunity for the Quds Force to orchestrate a more meaningful and devastating revenge attack? If you were a betting man, Pat, where would such an attack occur? The usual places like Iraq, Syria or another Gulf state or somewhere surprising and totally unexpected? Well, I think they'll be planning for both. But I think that there's still quite a lot of low-hanging fruit, if you like, available in, let's say, the Straits of Hormuz. Mm. I mean, the ability to close the Straits to shipping is one of the things that the Iranians have. I think one of the, the reasons for the perhaps seemingly unexpected view that says, you know, okay, we've we've launched these missiles, we didn't kill any Americans, uh, but there we are, we'll count it out. Um, the Iranians, from a strategic point of view, would like somebody other than Trump to occupy the White House. You know, I mean, um, they would they would like to go back to the sorts of arrangements they had under Trump's predecessor, um, somebody who was prepared to deal with Iran on a sort of almost equal basis. They don't believe. I don't think it. The Iranians think it's in their interests to have a second Trump term. 
they know that if they launch a major attack on the United States now, that will probably have the effect of strengthening Trump's hand. And I think that the Iranians are going to, things lie, if Trump is defeated in the election, then they will look uh, at how they're going to deal with whoever you know replaces him, whether it's Biden or Saunders or whatever. If Trump is re-elected, I think you will see quite early on in his second term that the Iranians will cause a, a major upset. Because they will see that, you know, revenge has not happened. Yep, that's a fair call. Iran's theocracy is under maximum pressure both at home and abroad. The Iranian the Iranian economy is isolated and severely crippled. People are restless and protests are now a normal part of everyday life among Iran's cities. Trump has now walked away from the Iran nuclear deal and has increased economic sanctions on Tehran. Iraq seems to be set up as a battleground for continuing U.S.-Iranian tensions, with a government in Baghdad torn in its loyalties to both the United States and Iran. Indeed, the Iraqi parliament only recently passed a resolution calling for the withdrawal of 5,200 U.S. troops in Iraq. If this happens, will we see a repeat of the Obama-era U.S. withdrawal of 2011 with the rise of ISIS? Will the remnants of ISIS see this as a golden opportunity to revive its fortunes in the Middle East? Well, I think that this is one of the problems of uh, doing global strategic operations without thinking things through. You know, the the fact that Bush did not like Saddam Hussein, you know, they felt they had to get rid of him. And, of course, that has caused the the entire instability within Iraq. And there is no way in the future that Iraq is going to go back to being a a steady sovereign state. The Iranians have got a huge stake in Iraq. This is back to the old Sunni Shia debate that's been going on for you know fifteen hundred years. And and so the United States is certainly not going to settle it. Um, I think that there is a very uh, good chance that Iraq will fracture uh, down uh, its religious zones, that uh, it will allow ISIS to be able to recover. Uh, after all, the Americans in 2002 went into Afghanistan because that was where al-Qaeda were able to uh, develop their training bases and do all sorts of things. Um, You know, I think that Iraq is now going to um, uh, be that unstable area in which further attacks on America and on the West can continue to happen. Nobody, the Americans least of all, are going to be able to sort that out in the near term. So, Pat, where do you think Britain will jump on this issue? Will it give its full and unwavering support to the United States? 
or will now, you know, in a post-Brexit environment, be something more limited and conditional? I think that we will. I'm not sure that I, I would say our unbridled and um, absolute support, but I, I think that we continue to recognise that the United States is a superpower and that it is in our strategic interests to be more closely aligned with them. But what we might seek to do, and this really depends upon the relationship between the British government and the White House, we would see ourselves acting, if you like, as a, an arbitrator, uh, as, as a conduit uh, to be able to get things moving. I don't think we're going to be able to be in that position with Trump because I don't think Trump does not need people to arbitrate. He does not need people to get his messages through by back channels because he of course is the is the man who does the deal he is the man who can uh, sit down and negotiate with president g um and then at the same time announce uh, trade tariffs uh, on all sorts of things and while you have somebody in the white house who is that all-pervasive and, um, you know, the hugest of policymakers, you know, the UK is going to have a difficult time. But I think that at the end of the day, we will aim to stay close to the United States. I don't think we would become quite as much of a, you know, whatever you say, Donald, is going to be what we agree with. Okay, Pat, thank you very much for your insights. That's a wrap for this particular episode of Strategicon. Thanks for joining us once again. Thank you, Pat. It's a pleasure, and um, I hope that you get some rain out there and um, your bushfires start to die down. Uh, thanks very much. We really need the rain. That's absolutely true. All right. Hey, take care. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope that you'll join us for our next exciting adventure through the world of geopolitics. Remember that you can subscribe to Strategicon through the Ozcast Network, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn and Spotify. And please like us on the Sage International Australia Facebook site and follow us on Twitter. We appreciate your support. Also, please comment on any of our articles and podcasts through Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and, of course, on the Sage International Australia site. We welcome any constructive feedback that can help improve our products and we look forward to engaging with our followers. Also, if you would like to support Strategicon, remember to check out our merch page. We have a wide variety of items to keep the Strategicon listener satisfied. Until next time, goodbye.